of course I have Jewish friends. I live in New York, duh. And I'm a banker, so my goodness, it's like I was just like shooting fish in a barrel. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Each Schmaltzy episode revisits a personal story told at a Jewish Food Society live event of the same name. The main ingredient in addition to food is often family. But these are stories with a complex mix of other flavors too, like joy, disappointment, laughter, longing, and love. Pull up a front row seat to hear the original live stories from the stage. Then we'll go behind the tales with the storytellers for more. Today on Schmaltzy, Umber Ahmad, owner and chef of Mazadar Bakery. Umber grew up traveling around the world, in her words, belonging simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. Her family is from Pakistan, but she was born and raised in a rural town in northern Michigan, filled with Finns and Swedes. Umber has an MBA in finance from Wharton and worked for many years on Wall Street and as an investment banker before she entered the culinary world. Mazadar Bakery was born out of her one-bedroom apartment in 2013. Today, she has a flagship location in New York's West Village, a newly opened shop in Washington, D.C., and a midtown NYC location on the way. Personally, my favorite treat on the menu is the chocolate sable cookies. Here's Umber from the Schmaltzy stage where she shared her story in front of 200 guests at a special Nasty Women version of Schmaltzy at the 14th Street Y in the East Village. Many years ago, when I first moved to New York, a dear friend of mine gave birth to twin boys, and I was invited to their bris. I was very excited to go. I had never been to a bris before. So I got dressed up, and I made pastry, as I do, and I trekked to the Upper East Side. I get to this beautiful apartment, and I find the food table. So I nestle my pastry amongst all the kugel and the locks and everything, and I turn to look for my friends. And before I can find them, this woman comes bounding towards me. She looks at me, and she grabs my unringed hand. You're not married. It was more of a statement, less of a question. I say, no. Mm. Why are you here? Who do you know? I'm friends with a mother. We went to school together. Ah, you're a banker too? I am. Mm. My son's name is David. He's a very nice boy. He's a lawyer. Oh, okay. (laughs) I don't recognize you from Temple. You go to Emmanuel? No. Mm. Park Avenue? No. Where do you worship? You go to Temple? I don't go to Temple. Well, why not? What, are you not Jewish? I said, no. What are you? I'm Muslim. As the word Muslim comes out of my mouth, she drops my hand. As it falls to my side of my body, she takes one step towards me, looks me straight in the eye and says, well, good luck to you. She turns on her heel. She walks away. And standing behind her is her husband. He's shaking his head. He comes to me, puts his hands on my shoulders, and says, I'm so sorry for my wife. She's very nervous about our son, David. He's a sweet boy. She's just trying to find a nice girl for him. I said, no worries. I guess it doesn't matter the culture. Mothers will be mothers. It's okay. But it really wasn't okay. She decided in that moment that I wasn't a nice girl. 
that the one thing that made me different from her was the one thing that didn't make me the nice girl. I was automatically separated from her and everyone else, and I was made to feel different. I was made to feel left out. But I was used to that. I grew up that way. My family is from Pakistan, and I grew up in northern Michigan, surrounded by immigrants who were from Finland and Sweden, Norway and Poland. Everybody was blonde and Christian. Everybody had Christmas trees and ate pepperoni pizza and macaroni and cheese. When we were young, my sister and I were in school, and people used to ask us to break dance all the time. Why should we break dance? Well, you're black, aren't you? No. Why would you think we're black? Well, you're the darkest people we've ever seen. Fair enough, but we're not black. Well, you kind of look like the Jacksons. Uh, no, we don't. Although now, if you think about the bleaching and the surgeries, I mean, we could be cousins. The one thing that differentiated us most from everybody else that we grew up with was our mother. Most moms drew kind of that sort of normal all-American mother photo. They wore high-waisted jeans, they had tight curl perms, and drove station wagons. That was not mama. Mama usually wore a cape instead of a coat. She liked those high cork platform shoes. She had lots of bangles that she would wear on both hands that would make noise when she would tell stories. She always drove this enormous white Cadillac. It had really loud Spanish music that would blare from the radio. And everywhere she would go, she would always say, Stop signs are more suggestions. It's not really a rule. <laughs> She'd always use the car to come and pick us up from school, and that was fine. But our favorite pickup day was Friday, because Friday meant we could have a play date. So play dates would either take place at home or we'd get to go to somebody else's house. If we got to go to somebody else's house, my favorite moment was snack time. Because snack time at other people's homes meant we got to have some sort of exotic food, something like Cheetos or a Rice Krispie treat, or my dream food, which was called a Little Debbie snack. <laughs> this thing was, oh my God, I used to dream about it. It was a chocolate cake that had some sort of a cream substance inside. It came in its own little plastic house, and it had a little like square cake plate. I mean, it was perfect. So when it came to our turn to host these, these play dates, my mother would come careening up to school with Julio Iglesias in tow, the car door would open, we'd pour into the back seat, and I would pray the entire way home, please, God, please, please let our snack be covered in plastic. We'd get home, my mother would throw the door open, and we'd be assaulted with the smell of lamb palau. <laughs> we'll hear the rest of the story in a bit and get back to that lamb palau. But first... We have Umber here in the studio with us. Hi, Umber. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to actually share something a little personal with you first before we get started. Okay. I don't know if you remember this, but I used to be a maitre d' at Gramercy Tavern, and you were actually one of my regulars. <gasps> I do remember. You know, I've been racking my brain since we met doing schmaltzy. It's like, how do I know you? What do you, how are we connected? What do you taste like? Which is what I always do. And I knew there was something, but I couldn't put my finger on it. You were a treasured regular oh. that my friend Jen, who trained me, yes. 
kind of she passed you along to me and always made sure that I looked out for you. I remember. You were always so kind mm. and you were also very glamorous in oh, my, my young goodness. mind. Thank yeah, you. So younger mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I always like wondered kind of what was your story? Mm. What was your life like? And I, will you indulge us a little bit? Like, what can you bring it back maybe 10 years ago or something when, when we could have been, you know, in that same beautiful room together? Like, what was your life like back then? My life was different back then. So about 10 years ago, I was an investment banker. Um, I was working on Wall Street and I was a regular at Gramercy Tavern and I loved it so much there. Uh, I used to bring my clients, bring my friends, my family, and it was just kind of my home away from home um, in a very glamorous, completely over-the-top way. Um, and then I became an entrepreneur and every penny started to count and I started eating apples and peanut butter and ramen noodles and uh, and smoked trout was no longer on the menu. I have the fondest memories of that time. Oh, my goodness. And working there. And we really had incredible regulars as yourself. Thank you. So I'm going to bring us back to the beginning of the story a little bit. And to that day that you schlepped to the Upper East Side yep. to your friend's breasts. And I, I believe in the story you said it was your first time it was. attending one. Um, what like, what was your expectation for attending for the first time? Like, it's not exactly the kind of event that, like, people are lining up for, like, a front row seat, you know? <laughs> yeah, I was pretty sure I was going to stay in the back by the food table when all that was going on. Um, I was really excited to go. I'm always really energized by having new experiences and being given the opportunity to become a part of someone else's culture. I feel that's a huge honor to be included. Uh, and in the situation where I was had an opportunity to go to a bris, I thought, well, this is incredible. Now I'm kind of, you know, in the inner circle and I get to sort of witness something that is really quite profound. Um, so I was uh, sort of filled with anticipation and, and sort of happiness and being able to do that. So it was a good experience. It was a great experience. <laughs> yes. So you had never been to anything really like that previously? Or are there any ceremonies like celebrating a new child, you know, in the Muslim faith? So in the Muslim faith, we celebrate a new child in a couple of different ways. Um, and one of them is there is a circumcision. Um, and in some Muslim cultures, it's almost like a wedding. It's such a big deal, and it's, there's a huge ceremony around it. Um, and in Pakistani culture, it's less so. Uh, so it wasn't something that was necessarily uh, lauded or attended. Um, in Muslim culture, one of my favorite things that we do when babies are first born is uh, it's sort of being able to sort of activate all their senses. And uh, the first thing that they should hear is the call to prayer, which we call azan. Um, and so an elder in the family will will uh, say azan. So the first thing into their mind and into their ears is the call to prayer and sort of the, the devotion to God. And the first thing that we do uh, is we put a little honey in the baby's mouth um, so that they will always know that their life should be sweet. And we love that. And in American culture, you're not supposed to feed honey to babies, I think, <laughs> until they're like three years old or something. But we just like shove it right in there and be like, that's what your life's going to be like. This is going to be sweet and delicious and exciting and fun. Wow, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. And I love the idea of exposing a baby to, to many different senses and experiences. I think that's important, especially when they're born into sort of a clinical hospital situation. They should sort of feel the warmth and embrace of their family as quickly as possible. 
So the bris was something new for me to experience, and I had read about it, and I sort of knew what was going to happen, and I talked to some of my other friends, and so I sort of had an expectation of how things were going to unfold. Um, it did not include uh, Mrs. Moskowitz asking me about <laughs> my eligibility for David. <laughs> wonder where David is these I days. I hope David he is. listens to this show. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. <laughs> um, in your story... We really got this sense when you're growing up in Michigan that you're a fish out of water. Mm -hmm. You're surrounded by people that don't look like you, right. that practice a different religion. How do you compare that to kind of the way that Mrs. Moskowitz made you feel at that bris? And when she asked you those you know, questions about who you were so candidly. It's interesting how certain experiences that uh, you have as an adult can take you immediately back to your childhood, and it sort of wipes away any and all progress that you think you've made in your life. Um, you know, one of the things that we spent a lot of time doing as children with our family was developing a sense of self and identity and pride around who you are as a human being, the kind of person that you've become, how you treat other people, and saying, you know, these are the things I'm proud of, and this is what defines me. And as I got older, I really started to embrace that ideology where the definition of myself wasn't that I had black hair and that I had brown eyes and that I was a Muslim and my family's from Pakistan, but instead the definition of me was much more um, that I like to make people laugh and that I cared and I never forget a birthday and, you know, my wanting to be in business was to help other people grow their own visions. That's what defined me. So when I was approached, accosted with the question <laughs> of my eligibility or lack thereof, uh, it kind of stripped all of that away. And I went back to being the six-year-old girl with the long braids and the pink glasses, just sort of not belonging. Um, and there was sort of a sense of sort of outrage that, uh, that I was made to feel that way. And it turned more introspective that I allowed myself to feel that way. And that's where I think it was sort of that turning point for me to say, you know, you don't know me and you've made a decision about me, but that's not who I am. That's who you have decided that um, that you have defined me to be, if that makes sense. Completely. Um, you know, when I heard that part of the story, I was thinking like, wow, you know, clearly the older generation of Jews are are still really clinging on to this idea of only marrying, you know, within the Jewish faith. Hmm. And do you think that our younger generation, do you think that we're more open? How do, how do you think we think about who our life partners should be in comparison to the older generation? So I think that um, within sort of my community of people, um, I have a lot of Jewish friends and uh, I live in New York, duh. <laughs> Uh, and I'm a banker, so my goodness, it's like I was just like shooting fish in a barrel. Of course I have Jewish friends. Uh, but uh, what I've noticed is that there's been a very strong commitment to heritage and to the continuation of um, family and bloodlines. And so even in the younger generations, uh, I think that our, peop our sort of age people have really committed to marrying in the faith and keeping uh, keeping the Jewish religion going forward. So I would say... I know of a couple of people that have um, had people convert into Judaism, uh, but mostly I, my Jewish friends are marrying other Jewish people. Interesting. Thanks mm. for sharing your perspective there. Yeah. So one thing I do know about Jewish people is that we love to eat. Yes. 
So what did you what did you bring to the breast? Like, let's get into the food. That's a really good question. And I have to confess that I don't remember what I brought. And if I th- if I think about it, it was probably like a cake with some fruit or something like that it was probably what I did because my friend likes that. So I kind of made what she would enjoy. Um, and I wanted it to be not a traditional, like I wasn't going to bring any sort of like Jewish uh traditional pastry because I would never presume to make it better than any of the people that were there. So I wanted to bring something that was sort of emblematic of my style and something that she would enjoy. So I think it was a cake with some fruit, if I remember correctly. I'm sure it was awesome. I think so. I hope so. I ate bagels. That's all I ate that day. I was so excited. <laughs> I had bagels and lox and I like love whitefish. Everyone thinks I'm so weird. The whitefish salad. Love it. So I probably had two plates of that. It's one of my favorites. Oh, so good. So we'll stay on the wrist for just <laughs> One more minute, and and Mrs. Moskowitz is is still kind of in my mind, okay. and this moment of you know when she dismissed you, yes, in a way, and said like "Good luck to you." Yeah. What do you think she wanted to say there, maybe, but she didn't say, or how did how did you take that comment from her? I think she wanted to ask me why I was really there. I think there was a sense of I I was an interloper, and that you know how dare I sort of cross the the uh, the threshold into that room um, because why was that, what was what right did I have to be there was really more the tone and the intonation of our question and I think she probably stopped herself short and figured the uh, the menschkite thing to do would be to wish me luck so she did that's a very nice way of thinking about her mm. <laughs> <laughs> your family as you let us know in the story is you know, immigrated from Pakistan, yes. and you came to what can I, I can only imagine is a very unfamiliar place, that part of Michigan, rural Michigan. What was behind your family's decision to do that, to go to a place where there was hardly going to be anyone else like you yeah. there? So my father is a surgeon, and he was doing uh, his postdoc training, and he started being was a, as a professor of medicine um, at Harvard University. And when he and my mom got married, They stayed a bit in Boston, went back to Pakistan for a while, and they made the very conscious decision to leave Pakistan and come to a country where they wanted to give my sister every opportunity to have every advantage um, and do anything that she wanted to do uh, that wasn't at the time in Pakistan possible for women. So that was a very progressive thing that my family decided to do. And in doing so, my father really wanted to go back into academia. And my mother said, we can, you can do whatever you want. I just want you to make enough money for piano lessons. And piano lessons wasn't just about piano lessons. My mom had, you know, obviously all these other dreams and plans and wishes for her daughter. And so they decided to go into private practice. And so my father joined um, a couple of his colleagues who had already set up a practice in northern Michigan, where they were the only ophthalmologists for the entire upper part of Michigan for more than 30 years before ever competition moved in. Um, so it was really a strategic market move uh, that they would go and, and be there. It was really smart. And at the time, in the 70s, there weren't a lot of Pakistanis in the United States. So it wasn't that you were seeking a community of any kind. You were you were a pioneer. You were an entrepreneur, and you were going to go someplace that was best for you because you had already made this massive, massive decision to leave your family and your homeland and everything you knew to be true. Um, so it kind of almost didn't matter where you went because you were going to build a new life anyway. And then a few years after that, I was born. So I was born in Marquette, Michigan. This might be a tough question to answer, but where do you consider home? I consider home wherever my immediate family is. Uh, we no longer live in Marquette, Michigan. Um, my family now lives in the southern part of Michigan. Um, 
I consider home a place where you can exhale. And that can be pretty much anywhere. You gave the most alluring description of your mom oh, in this I get story. <laughs> the cork wedge platforms, the Spanish music, yeah. the Cadillac. I want to talk about her for a minute and what her childhood was like yeah. and what shaped her. My mother was the eldest of three children. Um, she was born to my grandparents in Pakistan after my grandmother tried to have kids for 10 years. And um, then she finally, one day, her period stopped. She was super moody. She didn't know what was going on. And she was convinced that she had gone into early menopause. So she went to see the doctor. Um, and uh, after being examined, the doctor told her that she was pregnant. And my grandmother thought it was a joke. Um, nine months later, my mom was born. And so she was born into a situation of being very wanted um, and very cherished. Uh, my grand, she was sort of the carbon copy of my grandfather. My grandfather's a very strong, ambitious, interesting, funny, dynamic, talented man. And my mother was his copy. And that was a difficult thing to be in a country that thought women had a very particular place and had a very particular mission or objective in their lives. And my mom sort of bucked that every step of the way. And to my grandparents' credit, they allowed her to go a certain distance. Uh, you know, she really wanted to be an architect. And so the architect was out, but she ended up getting a master's in English literature and language studies, which women didn't do back then. She was also um, allowed to choose her husband, which was also very different. Most people were told, this is the man you will marry. And my grandparents said to her, we want you to meet them and you can say yes or no. Um, so my mother said no to over a hundred people before she finally said yes to my dad. So my father feels very, very excited that she finally said yes. Um, but it was also that, you know, she was empowered as much as she could be um, in the country and the society that she was living in. Wow. Yeah. I cannot get over a hundred. Did she yeah. ever did she ever tell you what made her choose your father? Oh my goodness. It's a good story. Um, so my mother was only 21 when my parents got married. My father was 36 and my mom was 21. Um, and at 21 years old in Pakistan, um, in the 60s, you may as well have been 121 because everyone's written you off and is just so sad. You're just covered in dust and you're going to live, you know, in your parents' basement. Um, so my father and his family came to the house. My grandmother said to my mom, I want you to, you know, go put on a nice outfit. This boy's coming. He's, he, we think he's a good one. He's a doc. He's a surgeon. He's from Harvard. My mom's like, whatever. Um, meets him. Doesn't speak to him at all. And my mom always loved peanuts. She always had peanuts in her pockets. And she uh, looks at my dad, doesn't say a word to him, hasn't said one word to him since the, he walked in the door, takes her hand out of her pocket, has a bunch of peanuts in it, and puts it towards my father. And he looks at her hand and says, what are you offering me? The peanuts are your hand. By far, the best thing my father has ever said in his 89 years of life, by far. My mother looks at him, shoves her hand back in her pocket, still doesn't say anything to him, walks away and goes and stands with her mom. Everything gets sorted. Everybody gets back into their cars and they're driving back. My mom's in the back seat with her mom and she turns to my grandmother and says, yes. My grandmother says, yes, what? She said, yes, I'll marry him. 10 days later, they got married and they were married for 50 years before my mom died. Wow. I mean, that's the highest bar they could ever set for my sister and I. We go on <laughs> dates and we're like, mm, I don't know. My mother's like, what don't you know? I gave him peanuts. We got married. And I was like, it's not that easy anymore. So uh, we, had a, we had a really incredible example of love in our family. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that story. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, it's about knowing yourself and knowing sort of my mom would always say, know your wants versus your needs. 
everybody, you know, dates and seeks their their wants. Like, I want him to look like this or have this education. I want him to come from this family. I want him to have this personality or whatever. But what do you need? I need to feel safe. I need to be free. I need to know limitless love. Those are what I need. And then that package shows up and you get on a plane and you go to Boston. You were kind of caught between two different worlds. Mm. You know, you wanted to be a typical American kid with the snacks and the mom with the high-waisted jeans and all of that. But also, you have such a deep connection to your Pakistani roots. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of internally resolve that? or, Or how did you when you were younger and how do you now? I don't know that there's ever a true resolution when you are sort of straddling two different worlds. It's not even straddling two different boats. You're straddling two different worlds. Um, And I think there comes a point in time, and I can't really tell you exactly when it happened, but when it goes from being a disadvantage to being a superpower. And the minute you figure out that it's a superpower, that you know something that other people don't, that you've experienced things that other people haven't, that you have an opportunity to escape into a different world or to venture into a different sort of emotion, uh, you start to really embrace that and kind of figure out what you're going to do with it. Um, it doesn't happen when you're 12 years old and you know everybody's doing something different and you have to go home and, and make lamb palau, but it happens at some point and then it just becomes this just really great sort of secret that you have and you get to share it with people when you think it's appropriate. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. We're going to go back to your story. Okay. Setting the stage that your friends are over for the play date. Yes. You're anxiously awaiting the snack time reveal. Yes. And as you said, we get assaulted <laughs> with the delicious aroma of lamb palau. Lamb and onions and garlic and ginger and cumin and cinnamon, and I'd be mortified. I wouldn't even be able to look my friends in the eye. Here are my friends. There's Minda and John and Heidi, and they're so cute, and they're blonde, and they're wearing their Reeboks and their Levi's, and they're living their Norman Rockwell life. And I'm standing here on an oriental carpet. My mother's wearing harem pants, and I'm living a thousand Arabian nights. (laughs) So I look at my mom, and I say, Mama, why can't you be normal? Why can't you make brownies from a box or even a tuna casserole? And she'd smile at me and say, because that's not our story. This is our story. Lamb Palau is our history, it's our family, it's where we're from, it's our flavor. And someday you're going to be grateful that you have a crazy, interesting, fantastically wonderful mother. And I'd say, Mama, today is not that day. (laughs) That crazy, interesting, wonderful, fantastic mother used to take us on trips every year. My parents would pick a country around the world, and we'd spend a month there each summer. They would get to befriend the taxi drivers and the people that worked in the hotel and the gate minders and the people that picked us up at the airport. And they'd say, where do you eat? Where do your families go for dinner? And they didn't have the day say something like, you should eat in hotel. It's safe. And my mother would say, we don't want to be safe. We want to be you. So we'd go to these little restaurants and the food would come to the table and we'd pray and we'd thank for the abundance of the meal. And my mother would have us close our eyes. So we sit there with our eyes closed, and she'd say in Urdu, in what magic, what flavor essence, what story do you taste? And I'd say, I taste cinnamon, and I remember it from the oatmeal at home. But we're eating bastilla in Morocco, which is chicken and almonds and eggs and phyllo and cinnamon. And then 
We're having rice in Spain, and the saffron reminds me of the bread in Sweden. And then we're eating mole in Mexico, and it reminds me of the chocolate in Switzerland. And one day I'm eating fish in Italy, and the cumin reminds me of the lamb palau. And food became a storytelling device, and it became my story. It became our bloodline. And I started to wish that I had taken the lamb palau to the bris. I started to wish that I could tell my story not as what I wasn't, but it's a story of everything that I was. So when that lady asked me, where did I worship? I could say, I worship at the temple of all of my storytelling and my travels and my family and my failures and my loves and my flavors. And if you wish to know me and you wish to know my family, then you'll try my lamb palau. I listened to your story so many times, and it still makes me cry. It makes me cry, too, actually. It's so powerful. Thank you. And I can almost taste the, the lamb pulao that we served at the live schmaltzy oh. that we did together. It was if such I- an honor to be able to make that for all of you. I was so excited and energized around the opportunity to share that and really nervous because I was like, what if nobody comes? What if nobody eats my lamb? What if everybody just wants all of the other food? Um, And I was very excited to see that everybody kind of jogged over to the table um, and we ran out of lamb palau very quickly. I was very excited about that. So I think the question to ask is, can we get it as a special at the bakery? (laughs) I would like that very much. My team would like that as well because the smell of the lamb cooking and all of the spices, everyone gets very excited. I do cook Pakistani food in the bakery just for my team um, when I really miss my mom. I I cook for them. Invite us over one time. I will. We'll come to family meal any day. I would love that. (laughs) That would be wonderful. I really feel like with this opportunity of storytelling and sharing that you have become part of my family. And that, for me, has been a huge honor. The honor is really ours, Umper. Thank you so much for, for sharing so honestly and beautifully your story. Thank you. And we're, we're so excited that our listeners will have a chance to hear it. Thank you. I'm very excited about that as well. Schmaltzy is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in New York City. We want to hear from our listeners all around the world. Send us your thoughts, comments, questions, and even your kvetching. Just record a voice memo right on your phone and email it to hi at jewishfoodsociety.org so we can share it right here. Also, we're new. Be a mention, rate us on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get this show. Schmalti is created by Nama Shafi, produced and edited by Ilan Benatar, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Until next time, I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Oh, the